The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome Dr. Mark Holbreich. He is a physician based in Indianapolis, Indiana. He received his training at the New York University Medical Center and the National Jewish Hospital in Denver, Colorado. He is a diplomat of the American Board of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology and a fellow of the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. He's also on the faculty of the Indiana University School of Medicine. I heard Dr. Holbreich speak at the Association of Healthcare Journalists meeting where he served on a panel titled The Dirt on the Allergy Epidemic. And I thought that his research specifically focused on Amish children was especially important to share with our listeners. So Dr. Holbreich, welcome. Thank you, Melinda. It's nice to be here. All right. So before we get into your specific research, for our listeners' sake, let's just go over a little bit about some general information about allergies. We know food allergies are on the rise, and we don't really know what's causing that. But can you explain a little bit about the difference between a food allergy and a food intolerance? Sure. A food allergy is something very specific where your body's immune system makes antibodies to the food, and you have an allergic reaction to that food, just like you would to a cat or to pollen or to dust mites. So the reactions to foods are very predictable. They're hives, vomiting, sneezing, chest tightness, a very immediate reaction. And then with regard to next steps, when a parent suspects that their child has a food allergy, what should they do? Well, I would suspect that about 50% of parents would suspect that their child has some sort of adverse food reaction. And that can be something such as milk intolerance. We have parents say that their children have fruit juice and they have diarrhea. Those are things that are just easily fixable by mild modifications of the diet. But a child, typically somewhere around the age of one or less, one to 18 months, has an immediate reaction with the most common foods that consists of those symptoms of vomiting or hives immediately after ingestion, then that's a real red flag. Now, I remember back to my childhood, I don't think there was any child in my classroom that I knew of that couldn't be exposed to a peanut butter sandwich. And what I hear people tell me the most is that, you know, they ask, where did this peanut allergy come from? Why are we seeing an increased rate of food allergies? There's got to be something going on in our environment What do you think explains that increase? I think the thing we know for sure is that there has absolutely been an increase. The number of children with peanut allergy in in the time that I've been in practice, which is quite a long time, has just seemed to have exploded. But I don't think we have a really good answer as to why that's happening. It seems to be happening quicker than other allergies. Mm -hmm. But it's it's sort of a mystery, but it's, it's real. Right. Well, I went to the Food Allergy Research and Education website, which is www.foodallergy.org. And this is one of my my favorite sites to refer people to for more information. And I got your clearance that it was one of your favorites as well. But the top food allergens are indeed listed, and peanuts are at the top, 
followed by tree nuts, fish, crustaceans, shellfish like crab, lobster, shrimp, all seafood, and then milk and egg, of course, and soy tends to be up there too. So I want to know what exactly it is in these foods that are causing a reaction. Is it the protein component of these foods? Yes, it's a protein in the food. So there are certain peanut proteins that have been identified. We know there are about five proteins in food that people become allergic to. The same for milk and egg. Um, I would say that list of foods is probably peanut is number one, milk and egg are number two in terms of what we see in children primarily. A tree nuts, shellfish, we tend to see in older people. Interesting, African Americans have a higher prevalence of fish allergy hmm. than Caucasians. So there are some Interesting things, African-Americans have a little higher incidence of food allergy, too. So it is the protein in the food that people are allergic to. I see. Now, your research led you to an Amish community in Indiana, and I want to know how that transpired. Here you are working as an allergist. What took you from your office to a farm? Well, it's, it's a long story, but I can make it brief. I think the first thing for listeners is to understand who the Amish are. Right. Um, the Amish are a religious sect. And they came in the late 1700s from Switzerland for religious freedom. So there are big Amish communities in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Indiana. They're dispersed, some on other states, but mostly there. And they are living today as they lived when they first came to America, or pretty much. No electricity in their homes, no cars. Um, everything is done manual in the fields with horses. Um, and there's a big community in Indiana. And through some of my wife's work, she's a physician, um, working with the Amish community, um, we both sort of were allowed into their community to provide health care. And when I was providing allergy care, my observation was I couldn't find anyone with allergies. Wow. And did you have any hypothesis as to why that might be? You know, it was kind of curious because I started doing this in the late 80s. And even into the mid-90s, it was sort of an observation that I made, but it really didn't ring a bell until I started to read and see some of the literature first coming out from Europe that coined the term the farm effect. It was reported in around 2000, the first studies from some European farms, these traditional Swiss farms, much like the Amish farms, where the children had fewer allergies. So this gets to maybe a hypothesis that we've read about in the press called the, hy the hygiene hypothesis. Is it that the Amish children are exposed to more more microbes, more, I know you've, you've spoken about endotoxins, dust particles. What is it about their environment that sets them up to be protected? Well, we think that there are three things that seem to be important. In the Amish family, the children accompany the mother and the father into the barn while they're doing work. So the children being in the barn at a very young age seems to be important. It seems to be important that they're around these large animals, primarily cows, and that they drink raw, unpasteurized, unhomogenized milk. So those are the factors. It's not dust mites. It's not endotoxin, which are the cell walls of bacteria. It seems to be um, this rich, we call this rich microbial environment, which all the things that are in the manure and in the, in the hay, um, which we've not specifically identified, but definitely those three factors are the top on our list. Mm -hmm. Now, what was interesting in your presentation on the panel in Denver was that you mentioned that you also looked at some Hutterite children who would also be living in a farm farm environment, farm lifestyle, 
but their allergy rates were not the same as the Amish children. What do you think was the difference there? Well, the Hutterites are very much like the Amish. They have a religious community. They are farmers. They drink raw, unpasteurized milk. But the difference we see in the Hutterite life is that the men work in the fields um, and in the barns, which are quite a distance from the homes, and the women and children are pretty much schooled and live in the home. Uh, so we think the difference is these early life exposures that the Amish children have. It's not unusual to see an Amish child who's four weeks old or six weeks old in a little bassinet sitting, you know, leaned on against the floor, on the floor, while the mother and father are milking. Mm-hmm. And in the Hutterites, they just don't have those exposures. And that's interesting. So you've probably been asked a lot about the raw milk consumption, and I'm seeing two differences now. You've got Hutterite children who are drinking raw milk. You've got Amish children who are drinking raw milk. But because of the difference between their allergy rates, I'm assuming that the raw milk isn't really the magic factor here. And you must get a lot of questions about raw milk consumption for children. Is that right? Well, I think that's a very good observation because there's some feeling that from the Amish study and some of the Swiss studies that the milk is the protective factor. But obviously in the Hutterites, it doesn't provide them protection. So we feel that it is the combination of exposures that is protective. And milk that's unpasteurized and unhomogenized is not safe for anyone who hasn't grown up with it from the time their mother was pregnant, breastfeeding, and then weaned to it. So there's something, their immune system can handle the bacteria that are in unpasteurized milk where most individuals or all all individuals are at risk um, for an infection from milk if it's not pasteurized. Right. Well, it's interesting. Now, I'm thinking, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of a pregnant woman, and I'm wondering if it wouldn't be wise for me to spend some time in a barn. Well, if you're an Amish pregnant woman, it probably would be, but uh, I think, you know, it is this whole communal lifestyle is everything about their life. I mean, it's not a single exposure. I think it's during pregnancy, during early childhood years. Um, And once this protection sets in, we feel that it is lifelong protection. So as I tell everyone, as allergists, I spend my days in my office every day treating people who have allergies, which we know they will probably do with their whole life for the most part. And here's a community where allergies are somehow prevented. So prevention of allergies or being able to avoid developing allergies in this community is really unique. Mm -hmm. And it's not going to be enough then to recommend spending time on a farm if if we're pregnant or we're taking our young children. Just having maybe minimal exposure isn't going to be enough. It has to be an environment in which we're raised for long term. Our thought is that, yes. I, I do not think that we've done enough work with other types of farms. But we know that, this is a little off, but in some of those European studies, when they look at populations of children who have spent some time on farms growing up, they seem to have a little bit less allergies than the children who never spend time on farms. But the children who spend all of their times on the farm are much better. So there, there's probably a stronger signal when you're there all the time. And, mm-hmm. and I think the thing that's interesting is that the Amish children had significantly less allergies than even the Swiss children who live on these traditional farms. So there's a very strong signal in the Amish lifestyle that seems to drop 
they're not without allergies. We find about 7% of the children will have a positive skin test to a common allergen. We're in the general population. It's close to 50%. Wow. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about this idea of growing out of allergies versus once you have an allergy, you have it for life. I've often heard this idea that, well, you know, they've got an allergy now, but they seem to be growing out of it. How common is that? And for what kinds of allergenic substances is that more likely to be the case? That's a very good question. I think I I misspoke a little bit. When I talk about seeing children with allergies, I mean, there are different phases of allergies, and we often talk about the allergic march. So children who start out with egg and dairy allergy, they may have it for the first five to six years of life, and then they do outgrow it. Um, But interestingly enough, peanut and tree nut, you tend not to outgrow. Um, As you tend to lose egg and dairy allergy, it's not uncommon in children who are four or five, six years of age who are now tolerating those foods, then begin to develop respiratory allergies and asthma. So it seems to be this march of allergic problems from birth with atopic dermatitis at a young age to food allergies to food allergies changing to then developing allergic rhinitis or hay Mm -hmm. fever and asthma. I'm thinking that for children who are leaving the safe environment of their home where the parents may be extremely judicious and then they enter the school system, that must be really stressful for the family. Um, it is. It is. And part of our job as allergists is to appraise them of the risks and, and uh, the safety and what is a safe environment and what is a not a safe environment. We talk about living well with allergies. You cannot keep your child in a bubble. You can't protect them from the world. So you have to learn to live with your allergies. And in fact, it is ingestion of the food that causes the problem. So in rare circumstances, someone may have a problem from being in a room where a food is being cooked. But things such as peanut butter, um, you have to eat it to have a problem. You Smelling it is not an issue. For most all foods, it's eating it. So we educate the families about that, about label reading, and the children, surprisingly, by the time they're two or three, they're asking people, you know, does that have peanuts in it? I'm allergic to peanuts. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we are having a conversation with Dr. Mark Holbreich. He is based in Indianapolis. He's affiliated with the Indiana University School of Medicine. He's been practicing as a board-certified allergist for over 20 years. I heard him speak at the Association of Healthcare Journalists annual meeting in Denver, where he spoke about his unique research looking at allergies among Amish children. Well, I know that you have a wonderful Facebook page, and I wanted to let our listeners know about that. So if you simply search Dr. Mark Holbreich, that's H-O-L-B-R-E-I-C-H, on Facebook, you provide wonderful updates on research. And I read where you had worked with the Indiana legislature to help provide some protection for children in school. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So there is something called injectable epinephrine, and anyone who has a child with allergies or be sting allergy, knows that there are these auto-injectable pens. And children who go off to school, in the event that they should have a reaction, have a pen at school along with an, a plan for use. However, the way the law is in most states is that a child must have an EpiPen assigned to them that a nurse cannot use, just an undesignated one. We know that as many as 25% of children will have their first food allergic reaction in a school. So this legislation 
which has just been passed in Indiana and has passed in about 27 other states, allows a school nurse or a trained individual school to administer injectable epinephrine to a child or staff member or a visitor who's having an allergic reaction, and they'll have in the school an injectable epinephrine, they call them auto-injectors, that are designated as for anyone. So they're not taking another child's. The school will purchase or have donated to them um, an EpiPen. What are some of the biggest challenges you see among your population of patients? Well, I think we talk about families with children with food allergies. I think it becomes a challenge. And, and the challenge is that the family has to understand that dying from a food allergy is extremely uncommon. It does happen. It's most common in the adolescent to young adult age when a lot of bad things happen. But in school-age children, uh, fatalities from foods are very, very rare. And I think if the parents walk around or the children walk around thinking that if someone has peanut butter in their hands and touches me or if I should get a bite of something by mistake, I might die, that raises tremendous anxiety in the families. So I think that the biggest challenge we have is trying to I said, teach families to live well with allergies. Their children will do fine. Um, They will not need to get injected with epinephrine, although it's available. They just need to be cautious. So that's the challenge we face. Of course, we face the challenge of so many more allergies, but once you have them, uh, our job as allergists is to make their lives uh, as normal as possible. Now, tell me a little bit more about your research life. You've studied these Amish children. What's next? Well, we think our next big project, and we're in the midst of seeking funding for it, is to compare the Amish and the Hutterites, because as you mentioned, they have a very similar lifestyle. They drink raw milk. They live a rural environment. Um, they come Genetically, they're identical. We've looked at genetic studies comparing the Amish and the Hutterites, and they are indistinguishable genetically. So a lot of people have said to me, well, the Amish have you know, their own gene pool, so they're, you know, they're protected somehow. But no, the Hutterites are not protected. They're the same genes. So we're trying to see what the differences are and measuring all sorts of things. And I know when you and I have talked previously, we mentioned this new area of interest, the microbiome, right. what's in the intestine. And our goal would even be to take stool samples from Amish and Hutterite children and try to compare their microbiome. Well, that's very interesting. I know it's really been seen as the new frontier, both in nutrition and medicine. And I wonder, I was going to ask you about how breastfeeding and vaginal birth seem to offer protection to children against allergies and asthma. And what is the mechanism, do we think, going on there? You know, I don't think we understand the whole issue of how the microbiome is protective or not protective. Vaginal births, obviously, you have an exposure to bacteria that's in the vaginal canal, where cesarean birth is very sterile. So children who are born vaginally have a different intestinal flora than children who are born by cesarean section. So that part is really the new frontier of of study and how it affects you know many diseases. And I think it's just not allergies and asthma. I think people are looking at many different diseases and see what effect our intestinal flora has. I mean, we have more cells from bacteria and other organisms in our intestinal tract than we have of our own. Yeah, it's really amazing. It's really an exciting time to be doing this research, I think. Well, we've got these children now that are living in our society that seems to be very focused on 
you know, the antibacterial wipes. Maybe the child is in a school and we don't have time to wash our hands, you know, with soap and water, so we're just going to use these antibacterial washes and wipes. What is your opinion on those? Well, the issue is I think that over the last hundred years, um, we talked about raw milk. You know, people used to die from drinking unpasteurized milk, so there's pasteurization, which was a huge public health issue. Sanitation has improved, so children don't have dysentery, and we don't have those diseases that happen with poor sanitation. Um, so all of this cleanliness has done a lot. It has saved millions of lives from infection. But the trade-off may be that we see more allergies. So I think that you know reasonable sanitation and hand-washing is a very good way to prevent the spread of infection. Um, but the price we have paid for this clean and healthier environment may be these 20th century diseases, not just allergies and asthma, but all sorts of things, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, rheumatoid arthritis, diabetes, all of those seem to be increasing um, as time goes by. Mm. And they all seem to point back towards that microbiome, those exposures and how they interact in our body. And I I'm sometimes concerned about some of the agricultural methods that we have, too, that that affect the microbiome in the soil and the plant life and how that affects us. And I don't know if you're looking at all at that with regard to these Amish farm communities. Well, our future research plans to, to look at soil and see if there's a difference in soil between the different homes. We've already looked at airborne dust in homes and to compare them to the Amish and the Hutterich, they're they're fairly similar. So I think we have more questions than we have answers. My area of research, looking at this very small group of individuals who have escaped the sort of allergy epidemic, is we're trying to learn from them um, what protects them. You know, I think that one thing you could say is that the Amish, in some ways, are living a life that our our body was intended to have, the sort of agricultural, uh, close to the soil. Um, that's what our, how our bodies evolved in the last 50 years. And we've made major changes in, in our lifestyles. And uh, maybe we just, our bodies haven't kept up with it. Mm-hmm. It's very, very, you know, not very scientific, but it seems you're right. Things have changed. And what it is exactly, we don't know. Mm. And it's so hard to tease out the different variables, isn't it? Very, very hard. I mean, it's very hard. And I, I think some of your listeners, any of them who have an allergic child who has peanut allergy, or just as you said, I mean, I see every day a young family, a young couple in their 30s. They come in and their child has had a fairly significant allergic reaction to peanut. They say, we don't understand it. I mean, we grew up, none of our friends had peanut allergies. We don't have allergies. Well, maybe I'm allergic to cat or dog or maybe I have some problems in the spring, but never food. And here's our child who has a peanut allergy. And sometimes they have a second child with peanut allergy. And their question is, how did this happen to my family? And we don't know. Hmm. We just don't know. And are you more likely to see like crossovers where if you're allergic to one thing, you're more likely to be allergic to another? If you're allergic to peanuts, you're more likely to be allergic to tree nuts. But, you know, I, I think if you're talking about foods, peanuts and tree nuts would be common to have both. About 40% of people are allergic to both peanuts and tree nuts. You know, milk and egg, as I said, tend to go away. So those allergies go away. And then fish tends to stay around. And most people who are allergic to fish can't have any fish. Mm-hmm. So those allergies, some get better, but a lot stay. And um, when you're allergic to things in the environment, 
cats, dogs, pollens, and molds, it's very common for people to be allergic to all of those. So we have some people who are just allergic to cats and some who are just allergic to dust mites. But we have many, many patients who are allergic to a variety of things. So foods tend to be fairly limited in scope, although the impression is that people have lots of food allergies, but really there are very few foods that cause allergies. But for respiratory allergies, there's a wide gamut of things that cause allergies. Mm-hmm. Now, we just have a few minutes left, so I want to give you an opportunity to share anything that I may have neglected to address with you. Well, I think you've done a very good job in, in touching on this you know, very complicated issue. And, you know, We have a, a lot of information, but not a lot of answers. But my group and, and my colleagues in Germany and really researchers around the world, when we look at these small communities like the Amish or the Hutterites, and we're, we're drilling down, drilling down, drilling down to understand these, what is our dream? Our dream is that we will say we have the answer, and whether it is some sort of specially manufactured probiotic where the gut may be changed in a young infant or in a pregnant mother, that's our dream. Our dream is to say we have something that potentially can prevent you from having allergies. So as allergists, we don't have to spend all of our time trying to treat the allergies. We can try to prevent them. And that is, is that tomorrow, is that next year, next month? If it's in 20 years, it would be great. But that's our goal. Well, let me just insert one more question here since we're, since we've touched on the issue of prevention. So for a mother, let's say a pregnant woman, is it advantageous, do you think, for her to consume foods that might tend to be in that high-risk allergy pool later in life? For example, I'm thinking, gosh, I don't want my child to be born with a peanut allergy. Is it advantageous for me to eat peanut butter sandwiches regularly while I'm pregnant? And then the second part of that question is, once the baby is born, are we reevaluating when we're introducing foods, the timing of those? Right. I think the answer to your first question is the research flops back and forth. So sometimes you say avoiding peanuts, less peanut allergy, sometimes eating peanuts. You know. So I, I think there's no solid recommendations about whether you should or should not consume peanuts during breastfeeding. I think that research will come, I mean, during pregnancy. During breastfeeding... The current recommendations are to breastfeed for six months. Now I think our thought is to introduce complementary foods earlier than later. So peanut, egg, and milk should not be withheld, but they should be introduced early. And as one of the speakers on our panel, Dr. Lack from London, said, they're doing a study called the EAT study, which will be another two years. But their interest and their thought is, which is very intriguing, is that if the mother is breastfeeding and by three months of age starts introducing these other foods, dairy, egg, peanut, while they're breastfeeding, then that breastfeeding produces some protection. The child then avoids the sensitization of those foods. So I think over the next two to three years, we're going to have a much better idea. But the answer to your question today is, yeah, we think that when you start introducing foods, at four or six months of age, there should be no restriction on what you're adding. So if you want to add egg or peanut or milk at six months, sure, go for it, because not adding it does not stop it from happening. So adding it early is probably good. Well, Dr. Holbreich, I want to thank you so much for being my guest and for sharing your expertise with us. Listeners, we've been speaking with Dr. Mark 
Holbreich. He is a physician based in Indianapolis, Indiana, and his specialty is, as you've heard, allergies and asthma, and research specifically dealing with Amish children for some clues. I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia. I will provide a link to your Facebook page, Dr. Holbreich, as well as the site that you and I both like so much, which is foodallergy.org. Thank you again so much for carving out time for me today. It was my pleasure.